Chapter 25 Gonna Die More Oh, fuck, turn that shit up. Baby Satan lunged over the front seat and punched the volume knob on Wayne Newton's crappy car radio. The three of them were crooked and loud. I, being the responsible one, was driving. She stopped at the nape of my neck and inhaled deeply, followed by a long, protracted sigh. Hey, did you happen to see the most beautiful girl in the world? She fell into the back seat, singing along at the top of her lungs. And if you did, was she crying? The puzzlement on my face as she bellowed Charlie Rich's biggest hit must have been obvious. The question it brought to my mind transparent. I adjusted the rearview mirror, looking for the answer. What? My daddy used to sing this song to me. She brushed away a chocolate curl that had stuck to her lipstick. I got my blue eyes from him. Her mouth was so otherworldly. It was the first time I actually looked in her eyes. I'll be damned, I mumbled to myself. You know what, she said, you kind of look like dear old dad. He was small time, but charming. His southern accent, his halfway decent vocabulary, and his impeccable manners were all very novel in the taverns along Aurora. He specialized in the rookies who were afraid to talk to the scary Negro pimps or the timid types who came over from the university district to lose that pesky virginity that had followed them from Boise or Spokane. The seasoned sharks couldn't be bothered explaining the rudimentary ins and outs of the world's oldest profession to newbies. They had a small army of volatile women, a city of greedy policemen, and their own vulnerable backs to consider, so they allowed him. They weren't the least bit threatened by this odd creature. They had seen his type before. Many an overly enthusiastic, fast-talking clown who thought he could parlay his talent for talking his way into high school girls' panties into an occupation had crossed their path. Theirs was a calling steeped in tradition. There were regulations that had been in place ever since the very first trick had been turned. There were rules that he either refused to follow or was completely unaware of. Manner of dress and skin color aside, he was just strange. He referred to himself as their agent. He opened doors for the ladies. He never called them whores or lifted a hand to them. He didn't have to. They worked for him, or with him, as he always corrected them, not because of intimidation or violence, but because they loved him. They genuinely loved him. The old guard knew these were not the building blocks on which a long-term, successful pimp-hooker relationship were built. Besides appearing weak, this sort of behavior could set unrealistic standards for the way this type of business was conducted. These were certainly future headaches for the career-orientated hustler, but this new guy had a pretty good eye for talent and didn't seem to mind acting as a buffer between them and nosy patrolmen who would drop in from time to time. A Caucasian face seemed to help in those matters. They indulged him in conversation occasionally, hoping to learn the secret of his baritone drawl and how it soothed unhinged female minds 
and made even the most outrageous requests seem perfectly reasonable. Try as they might, they were cavemen who only understood the slap and the growl. They felt confident that if they wished, and if his body didn't end up in a random dumpster some morning, they could simply take his clientele, his women and his money, and kick his ass back to Dixie any time they wanted. One evening, with a swift and vicious act, he changed their minds and cemented his legend in Seattle's filthy underbelly forever. A loudmouth motherfucker feeling the swagger that comes with a night of whiskey and wallet full of salmon fishing money is always dangerous. Their desire for pussy and booze is accelerated from being caged on a boat on the frozen sea between Canada and Alaska for six months and the pride they somehow feel from having performed such a task is expounded upon at boastful and insufferable volumes. They are reluctantly welcomed, but only long enough for the bartenders and pimps to fleece them of their paychecks. When one of these out-of-town thugs, a 300-pound unlikable monster who was practicing insanely poor judgment, put a knife to the breast of a troubled princess with the already peanut-sized baby Satan in her womb, he was probably just showing off. I'm going to cut this nigger's titty off, he announced to the bar. The last thing he saw before the blood from the open wound on his forehead filled his eyes was baby Satan's father standing there with a half grin and a straight razor. Daddy held the giant to the front door of the bar room with his forearm, disarmed him, and endured brutal, hairy-knuckled blows to the head and kicks to the shins as he calmly and methodically dismantled the stranger's abdomen with his own knife. His brown leather belt was the only thing stopping his intestines from flopping to the floor. He felt the heavy warmth of his blood as it soaked his long johns, his socks, and filled the new work boots he had purchased that morning. By the time he gained the wherewithal to scream, Daddy held his head back by a handful of hair and performed open-throat surgery before letting the ravaged man fall to the floor. The bartender reached for the phone to dial 911, only to hang up again when Daddy waved a blood-soaked finger at him. The devil slowly wiped his blood-spattered face with his sleeve, spit out a tooth, and limped out of the lion's lair with his arm around her mother's waist. If the man's filleted larynx were in working order, one may have heard his last words. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. Instead, they bubbled out onto the barroom floor. Broadway turned into Boren and then into Rainier Avenue. Espresso stands and cafes became less frequent, being replaced by 7-Elevens and fast food dumps. The skin of pedestrians became darker and darker. My hands were at 10 and 2 instead of being wrapped around my cramping guts. Expired or suspended, I wasn't sure what condition my driver's license was in, but I wasn't about to give some random pig any excuse to pull us over. The cure for my current physical plight was just a mile away, 
but the fact that I was hydroplaning through the streets of our least desirable neighborhood with three wild cards was not my foremost concern. I had bigger picture issues. I was pretty sure I didn't have a place to live anymore. Sure, I could grovel and get my job back, no problem, but then what? To maintain the anesthetized lifestyle I had recently grown accustomed to would require the kind of funds I couldn't make slinging porn. Plan B was a mystery. I had not given one single thought to the future, nor to my inevitable exit. Otis's place was nice. I didn't know what I expected, but it wasn't this cozy bungalow with multiple big wheels in the yard and a well-tended two heads that I assumed would burst with tuberose when spring rolled around. I didn't expect something so grandfatherly, I suppose. I checked the address again before I put the Oldsmobile in park. All right, you guys sit tight, I'll be right back, I said as I gestured toward Kelly for the cash. Oh no, I'm going in too, she insisted, grabbing her purse and checking her bangs in the visor mirror. I waited for her on the sidewalk. My foot tapped uncontrollably. I suppressed throwing up the beer I had drunk an hour ago. She leaned into the back window of the car, talking to Baby and Wayne. Fuck, enough chit-chat. My only solace a brief moment to admire Kelly's flawless ass. I imagined Otis was doing the same from dining room window, but I didn't turn around to check. We rang the doorbell twice and pounded on the screen door. Finally, we heard footsteps and the door flew open. Hello, welcome, Otis stood there, adjusting his hearing aid with his left hand and removing his apron with his right. I was just tidying up. Hello, sir, Kelly was the first to enter with her hand extended in Otis's direction. My name is Trixie, so lovely to meet you. Yes, yes, he said, I gotta turn my ears down when I do the dishes, it makes an awful racket. This way. He turned around and we followed him into his living room. Trixie, I whispered. Shut it, I like the name. The room was heavy with the smell of a thousand old books and three thousand old records and rice cooking in the kitchen. McCoy Tyner's The Real McCoy played quietly on a stylish zenith wooden console. The words featuring stereophonic high-fidelity sound proudly displayed under the brand name. African artwork, abstract kindergarten crayon masterpieces, and vintage baseball memorabilia littered the walls. I looked around for something to make small talk about. Nothing too involved, nothing too lengthy, nothing that would delay narcotics from entering my bloodstream, but maybe something that would resemble normal social interaction. The awkward silence was made even more cumbersome by our cultural and generational differences. The things we had in common, our work, the illegal activity we were currently involved in, the odd circumstances that brought us together, none of these were subject matter for casual conversation. I was painfully unskilled at sports talk, and the topics of grandchildren and dead wives were too emotionally risky. There were too many things we just couldn't discuss in the hopefully short period of time that our lives would intersect. My eyes were drawn to the framed black and white photos above the kitchen table. 
In the first one were four menacing-looking black men standing with shotguns on the stairs of what appeared to be a government building. I moved in closer for a better look. I touched their faces, removing the slightest layer of dust from the glass with my fingertip as I named each of them. Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seale, little Bobby Hutton, under the giant fro and significant sideburns of the next man lay the once fierce eyes of our now humble host. Otis Dixon, I said, turning toward him, suddenly realizing the esteemed company we were in. I'll be damned. Yeah, well, that was quite a ways back, he said, a sly grin coming to his lips. Honey, we are in the presence of an American treasure, I announced. She came up behind me and removed the photo from the wall for closer examination. Were you in a band, she asked. I tried to sound as stern and earnest as one could be considering my retainer and the onslaught of puberty. I conjured fire and brimstone but knew the odds of profuse sweating and a poorly timed erection were inevitable. Still, you show any fear during a seventh grade oral book report and you are dead meat. My admission was more important than a grade or the valuable experience of public speaking or the opportunity to impress Jenny, the light of my 13-year-old wife. I was spreading the gospel on my newly acquired worldview, starting with Mrs. Wilson's American history class. I cleared my throat. Seize the Time by Bobby Seale, I began. I spun a biblical tale of how at this very moment while we sat in class, there was a war being fought on the streets of Oakland, California, between police officers and a small but mighty band of Afro-American superheroes called the Black Panthers, all the while my voice fluctuating between its recently developed Barry White register and that of an excitable little girl. I rhapsodized of white bourgeois monsters and imprisoned ebony saints. I told tales of battles in courts of law and the commandeering of public parks in Chicago, free love and revolution. The pigs had pretty much won that war at that juncture, but I didn't know. I was just a kid who had read half a book and was hysterically encouraging my peers to take up arms. Kids squirmed in their seats, and our teacher sat at her desk, massaging her forehead as if she had a migraine. The one black kid in our class shrugged his shoulders as my fellow students looked to him for confirmation, and Jenny smiled big as I recited the Black Panther 10-point program from memory. We want freedom. We want the power to determine the destiny of our black community. We want full employment for our people. We want an end to the robbery by the capitalists of our black community. We want decent housing fit for the shelter of human beings. We want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent society. We want all black men to be exempt from military service. We want an immediate end to police brutality and the murder of black people. Okay, that's enough, Charlie. Our teacher slammed her fists on the tabletop. We want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace, I shouted over my shoulder as I was escorted out of class by Mrs. Wilson 
and walked in silence to the principal's office. Otis unlocked the filing cabinet next to his small cluttered desk and went about the business of weighing and bagging the most drugs I'd ever seen at the same time in my life. He poured a huge pile of the white synthetic painkiller onto a tray. I made a conscious effort not to drool. I was overwhelmed with reverence for the old man who sat at the same kitchen table as I. Cooler than Keith Richards, he hummed a bass line as he shoveled powder into several sandwich bags. He was no less important than Martin Luther King or JFK to me. He was a real agent of social change in America. He was a goddamn unsung superhero hiding in plain sight. I wanted to ask him what it felt like to point a loaded shotgun at a police officer while defending your neighborhood. I wanted to ask him if he's fucked Angela Davis. I wanted him to be my father. I gotta say, Otis, I admire what you guys did back then, I said, returning the photo to its proper place on the wall. Well, we were just a bunch of crazy kids, no different than y'all, really. I laughed out loud as I watched Kelly wave out the front window to Wayne and Baby in the car. I assumed they were halfway to Coitus in the moldy back seat by now. No, sir, I don't believe that for a second. Otis placed three baggies in front of me and cleared his throat a subtle request for payment. Honey, come over here and pay the man. Kelly produced a wad of bills from her jacket and waited patiently for him to count it before pocketing the dope. Otis grunted as he stood to escort us to the door. Then Kelly did something so inconceivably rude. I don't want to impose, but you, would you mind if we used your bathroom, Kelly said, batting her eyes. Manners be damned. As uncouth as I considered such a move, I wanted to throw my arms around her. Otis sighed and pointed down the hall. Make it quick before the little ones get home, I heard him call out as the bathroom door closed behind us. Casting all chivalrous behavior aside, I tore off my jacket and rolled up my sleeve quickly to claim my place in line. Sit, she said. I followed orders and sat on the edge of the tub, a shivering mass. I just need a little enough to get me back to the motel. Fuck that, we're getting high, baby. With a few drops of water from the sink, a pinch of dope, and the passing of her lighter under a spoon that seemingly appeared from nowhere, she knelt in front of me to administer the medicine. My veins jumped out to meet her. The puncture was glorious. A red rose of blood obscured the clear liquid in the syringe. My heart pounded, my cells fell immediately into place, and I was happily lost in the darkness of my eyelids. Shit, someone else is going to have to drive, babe, I said. I opened my eyes to find Kelly standing with her back to the door and holding her shiny new browning in both hands, the barrel pointed toward my face. Suddenly, breaking glass and splintering wood erupted in the living room. Get on the ground, shouted a male voice I didn't recognize through the locked bathroom door. Kelly's 120 pounds of betrayal and the ringing in your ears that occurs the first time you have a real pistol pointed at your head. The second was baby Satan's. Don't make me hurt you, old man. 
I stood quickly, instinctually. You don't want to stop this, Charlie, she hissed at me as she cocked the hammer of her weapon. <laughs>